All right, back again. Um, this morning, I have the joy and uh, privilege to introduce our speaker. His name is Will Gant. If you were here on Commissioning Sunday, Will was commissioned as um, a leader in our church, and he's going to be a part of our preaching team, and we get to hear from him this morning. So we, would you welcome Will this morning? Good morning, Tempe. All right. So starting off, if you uh, heard the passages that were read, they're kind of complicated, right? She read a lot of scripture, and it's complicated, right? So um, I just want to thank the elders for the opportunity to preach such a complicated text <laughs> and try to make sense of it for you. Um, and, and I just hope and, and pray for clarity. So uh, before we get started, let's go to the Lord. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to meet together as a family. I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to uh, deliver to your people through the power of the Holy Spirit your word. I pray that that word finds good ground in their heart and that the Holy Spirit does that special ministry that he has, that ministry of illumination. Father God, would you be with us today? Protect my mouth, protect my mind. Lord, give me clarity, give me power, give me strength. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. So um, this week, not only being tasked with this uh, complicated scripture, and you'll hear me say that a few times, um, uh, I had a lot going on. I started a new job, uh, and it was my first uh, week doing what I do. Uh, and that was kind of stressful. And then I had uh, family come into town uh, for a few days. Um, I had my son. He was playing in a big football game this weekend. So that was like really, really exciting. It took my mind off of, you know, work and the mes message and all that. So um, I am so glad to be here. Uh, and I'm, I, I hope that you are blessed. Um, even with all the distractions, I hope that uh, the Lord speaks through me. So speaking of my son, I try to uh, be the type of preacher that gets to Jesus any kind of way. Um, I get to Jesus uh, no matter what's happening in my, in my life. I can, I can get to Jesus with my failures because my failures tell me that without being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that I would be punished in an eternity in hell for the things that I did this morning. Thank you, Jesus. When I am successful, when I, I meet those or, or exceed the things that I wanted to do and I have some success, I know that Jesus is the one who gives me breath, who gives me ability to accomplish everything. Thank you, Jesus. Everything we do is about Jesus. And who is this Jesus? Right? This week, I got to Jesus through my son's football game. So this was a big football game. Um, they had lost to this team twice last year. This was the number, number 10 team in the nation. They lost uh, in, with three or four seconds left. They, had, they kicked a 10-yard field goal and missed it and lost the game. And so all year long, this team was just focusing on beating this team, lifting the weights, watching their nutrition, practicing, 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 conditioning themselves, all for that one game. 
They were anticipating the battle. They were anticipating having another shot at this team. And Friday, it was the game. There were, they say, 14,000 people there. It was the biggest high school football game in the country. It was the number 10 team in the country playing my son's team, the number 15 team in the nation. It was the, the highlight high school football game in the country. And they won. Right? So I say this to say this. When they won, the outburst of joy was unbelievable. They rushed the field. I mean, it was just, it was just amazing to experience this outburst of joy, waiting for something, working for something, and then experiencing it. In the context of our passage today, the Messiah has appeared. The long-awaited one has come. In Genesis, when Satan, in the form of a snake, caused the fall, God curses the snake and he makes a promise. He said, one will come that one day will crush your head, though you may bruise his heel. And now all of redemptive history through Abraham blessing the nations through, through Israel going into Egypt and being birthed into a nation of millions of people going in as a family and coming out millions of people. God giving them law, God giving them a king, God giving them the land, Canaan, and promising that one would finally come to make right what was wrong. In Malachi the last book of the Old Testament, you see God rebuking Israel for not being a witness to him, to the nations. See, if you, if you didn't know a Jew, you wouldn't know who God was because he revealed himself to them. So if you didn't know him, it's because you didn't know anyone of Jewish culture. And they were the ones who were responsible to be the witness to the world but they failed. Now you have the book of Malachi, God rebuking Israel for false worship. And then there's 300 years of silence. No prophets, no word of God, nothing. And then Matthew, one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, a prophet, finally appears to announce that the Messiah is here. There should have been an, up, an outpouring of joy because the long-awaited one has come. It should have been what I saw on that football field times a thousand. But it wasn't. They rejected and hated the long-awaited one. And now right before Jesus is going to the cross, he's giving his disciples these final instructions. He's teaching them where they fit in redemptive history, what is happening, what has happened, and what is about to happen. That's where we are in the text this morning. We are talking about the world and the hatred of the world. Now, 
I'm going to give you a little insight into this text before we jump into it. Um, Many people think that this text is really the text that teaches us uh, the relationship between us and the world, right? That the world hates us because it hated Jesus, and that's what he said. But there's something in this text that we're going to talk about um, that may change your mind about what it's saying. Are you ready? All right, so I'm going to need you guys to be with me today because, like I said before, it's a complicated text. And so I need you to be with me because as we move through it, that's where the blessing is, okay? So, I love that. (laughs) Why does the world hate us? Jesus says it's because the world hated him first. The world hates Jesus because it doesn't want to be told what to do, and it wasn't, doesn't want to be held accountable. The world likes options. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't give options. Jesus said to him in uh, John chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Now, people get angry when they're told they're sinners. They get angry when they're told they're in need of forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ. And if you love the one whom the world hates, then you will be hated also. Now, that is in the text in a prophetic way. Jesus is telling them what to expect in the future. But... At this point in redemptive history, at this point in the text, in the biblical text, Christianity was a legal, well, it wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't necessarily Christianity yet, but it was a legal religion, right? It was a sub-religion from Rome, their perspective, under Judaism. So it was legal to practice Christianity. Rome didn't have a problem with Christians. Right At this point, the ones who had a problem were the Jewish leaders. Jesus, though he's being prophetic to tell us that the world is going to hate us because of him, in his upper room discourse, he's explaining how the Jewish leaders, the ones who should have been joyful of his appearance, they are the ones who will hate you. So I talked about the world outside of the church. The rest of the sermon is going to be about the world inside the church. That's why the world outside the church hates us. It is the exclusivity of Christianity. Christianity being the only way. Jesus said that, not me. This is his words. In our text this morning, Jesus says he's the only way. The world hates that. But now we're going to move to the world inside the church. And hopefully it'll help you understand a lot of the tension that we see going on today. But that tension has been going on for over 2,000 years on a bunch of issues. Here's the text. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now, one thing we do have to remember that this is not the church, this is the faith community, this is Israel, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, right? But there are parallels that we can make. This faith community, the community that God had exclusively revealed his person and plan, but more importantly, his person to, right? This faith community were the only ones who knew the one true God. Are you tracking with me? Okay. So they were the only ones who knew God, who God was. They were the ones who revealed the person of God. Jesus is saying to his followers that you should have known who I was because of the things I had done, but the, and also you rejected me because of the things that I'd done, and you should have known who I was. It was in his word. Jesus didn't just, he wasn't just this hippie going and healing people and changing water to wine and doing these miracles. Jesus was in his whole ministry, it was like he was checking off every box that, that would describe or identify him as the Messiah. You have to remember, even on the cross, the things that he said and the things that he did while he was, he was giving up his life on the cross, he was checking boxes off that identified him as Messiah. And they should have known it. This is what he says. If you rejected me, you also reject the Father. Jesus calls a person with that kind of thinking the world. Okay? He's not, he's not saying that world out there. He's saying the world in here. And I'm going to also show you where in here where we reject Jesus. Follow me. When Jesus is talking about in Chapter 15, verse 1, he's talking about the vine and the branches, right? We've all read that. We've actually heard the message on the vine and the branches. This is what that is, and this is Jesus' illustration. So if it breaks down, blame Jesus. Jesus said, I received this love from the Father. He's the root, the Father. The vine sprouts from the root. Jesus says, I am the vine. I get this love from the Father, the root. So I have this love coursing through me that I now give to you, my people, if you're connected to me, branches. So we don't get this love on our own. We get the love that comes from the Father to Jesus, and then we share in that love. Are you tracking with me? Real important, the love that we have for one another, we share that love that, with Jesus that he gets from the Father. So we supernaturally are able to love one another because we share in the love of Jesus. Jesus loves us. 
We share in that love as branches. Now, we are, I don't know if you knew this, I'm going to give you some groundbreaking information. Everyone in here is hard to love. Everyone. I don't care how much you're in love with your husband or wife or boyfriend, girl, whatever it is, and you could love them deeply. There are going to be times when they are hard to love, and you love them deeply. Imagine the other folks in this room that we are commanded to love. We can only love them, each other, if it's supernatural. We cannot love each other without the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says the only way that it's going to happen is if you stay connected to me, branches. Right? So it is like the nutrition coming through a plant, and whatever nutrition is in the root is going to be in the vine, and then it's going to go into the branches. If there's a disease or anything that goes into the root, the branches get it and die. If it's rich nutrition, the branches get it and they bear much fruit. We share in this love that Jesus gets from the Father. It's not a love that we have. And we won't experience that love unless we stay connected, unless we, what this text says, unless we abide. We're going to talk about that. The faith community, the community that God had exclusively revealed his person and plan to, hated him. In 1 John 4.20, he explains this a little differently. So if you would turn there, 1 John 4.20, it says this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, this is what he's saying here. This is why love is so important, right? He's saying that if you don't love your brother, you don't love God. If you don't love Jesus, you don't love God. You don't love his people, you don't love God. Loving God is expressed in loving Jesus and obeying him and loving his people. Jesus says it like this in one of the miracles that he did. There was a pool of Bethesda, and there was a crippled man, and Jesus healed the crippled man, right? And the Jewish leaders, they confronted Jesus, and Jesus says this interesting line. He said, what is easier to say? take up your mat and walk, or your sins are forgiven. He says it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's invisible. You can't see sins being forgiven. So that you know who I am, take up your bed and walk. Jesus says when you say you love God, that's invisible. I, he says, so that, I, so that people will know that you love God, love your brothers. There's a tangible manifestation of the love of God that John says is, is, appears when you love the unlovable. 
if you say you love God and you do not love your brother, Jesus says you're a liar. That's what the text says. I said this in the first, Jesus is rebuking the, the, the Jewish leadership. And he's not doing it lightly. Jesus is coming in hot. He's, he's turning over the tables here. He wants the disciples to understand, before I go to the cross, you need to know you're going to be persecuted, and you're going to be persecuted by people who claim to know the Father but don't. This was scathing for the Jewish leaders. If you were to ask them, what is the one thing that you know, they would say God. Jesus says, you don't know God, you're a liar. And he says to us, if you don't love one another, you're a liar. And he calls this kind of person the world. Back to the text. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. There it is again. He says, they're going to persecute you because they don't know the Father. The Jewish people would say, we do know the Father. Jesus says, you're a liar, because if you knew the Father, you would know me. He goes on, if I had not come and spoken to you, they would not have been guilty of sin. What is the sin? It is the sin of rejecting Jesus. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them, the Jewish community, doing the miracles in front of them, the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause, end quote. This is, this is the part in the text that he reveals he's not talking about the world out there. This text tells us he's talking about the world within the faith community. This is a community that is professing to have this love for the Father that they really don't because they reject Jesus and they don't love their brother. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples this one thing, that the goal of the Christian life is in direct opposition to the mindset of the Jews. Now, for us, if I were to ask, what is the goal of the Christian life? We, we would say, many people would say worship, and ultimately it is. Worshiping, worshiping God is, is the uh, goal of the Christian life. But in this text, in this text, the goal of the Christian life is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Listen, he tells us in chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 7, he says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, fruitfulness. 
and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So now the question is, how do you abide in this love that Christ has? Remember the illustration, root, vine, branches. They all have to be connected. We share in the love, right? How do I abide? That's the question. If he says, abiding in me is the key. How do you do that? What is abiding? I love this. I, I, I love when um, uh, this, this guy said, how do you experience a command when your feet hit the floor in the morning? So you can, you can talk about this, and my wife and I were talking about this this morning. Um, if you ask any husbands that have been in any Bible studies anywhere, you would say um, they would all know, love your wives as Christ loved the church. They all know that. How does Christ love the church? You know the verse. How do you do it when your feet hit the floor in the morning? How do I do that? Well, Christ loved the church primarily by forgiving her, by making her the church. So you husbands, your wife doesn't even qualify for that passage until she sins against you. And now the text says when your wife sins, no matter what she does, you forgive her. That's hard stuff. That's supernatural stuff. So in this text, how do, how do we do this, Jesus, when our feet hit the floor? What is this abiding? If this abiding is key, what is it? This is what it is. He says it. It's the, it's the, it's the, the theology of keep reading. As the Father has loved me, verse 9, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is how John puts it in another place in Scripture. He says, why do you say you love me? and you don't obey me. Abiding in Christ is obeying him. That's what it means. It means obeying him. Well, obeying him, how? Well, he gives us, when, you, when you come to a decision, and you're going to come to a million of them in a day, there's always a crossroad. Am I going to do what Jesus said, or am I going to do what I want to do? Every day, you make thousands of decisions. What am I going to do? The person in abiding in Christ is the one that says, I'm going to do what Jesus calls me to do. That's abiding in him. And Jesus says, just how I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love, you mirror that. You keep my commandments and you abide in my love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be filled or may be full. So this is what he's saying. He is saying that in being obedient to Jesus, it glorifies him and it brings us joy. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism, I don't know if you're familiar with that, says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He gets that from this text. That the glorifying of God comes when we ab- abide in, the, in Jesus' love, and abiding in Jesus' love is just the way that we say we, say we obey him. And that brings us joy and it glorifies God. Now, here's the thing. This church community rejected Jesus. So they're not obeying him and they're not abiding in his love. The last point, the witness. It says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you, and this is verses 26 and 27, From the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, to some degree, this is directly to his disciples. They have been with him through the beginning. Now, you need to understand this about the Scriptures. How much of the Scriptures were written to you? Zero. How much of the scriptures were written for you? All of it. So you need to understand when you're in a text that is written to a a specific group of people, and then we have to pull the application out of that. So he's not telling us that we, we were with him from the beginning, but what he is telling us is we are to be his witnesses. Amen? That's 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 our responsibility. We find that in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Again, he's speaking to a specific group of people, but this command applies to all of us. We are to be his witnesses. Jesus came and died for us, for all of us, if you are a believer And now we go out and we tell people about the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ. We tell them that he was the long-awaited one. We tell them that, that there was an incident called the fall that separated us from the God from God, and we had no way to get back to him. But Jesus came. And now through his blood, he's made a way for us to be connected back to God and his love. We tell the world that. We tell them that there's no way to to God but through Christ. We are his witnesses. And now in the last three verses, we see this warning. Jesus said, I had said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because, here he goes again, they have not known the Father nor me. Jesus is saying these religious leaders don't know God. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. So this idea of falling away isn't losing your salvation. 
What he's talking about here is the persecution that's going to come, its purpose is to get you to fall away. That falling away means a trap. This is a trap to separate you so you do not abide in Christ. The world in the church, their focus, and I believe this is satanic, is to get you to fall away. It's a trap to fight with one another. It's a trap to stop coming to church. It's a trap not to get you to read the scriptures. It's a trap not to be baptized, not to take communion, not to be discipled. It's a trap to keep you from abiding in the love of Christ, obeying him. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They are doing this thinking they're serving God. I mean, how many arguments have you gotten into where people have such an ungodly position but believe that they're standing on the word of God? Maybe you've done some of that. Maybe I've done some of that. See, what we do because we're fallen is we take sin and we baptize it and then present it as God's word, as God's plan, as God's will. He says that they do these things offering service to God. The ultimate assault on God was the crucifixion of Jesus. They didn't crucify Jesus because they hated Jesus. They crucified Jesus because they thought they were serving God. They looked at Jesus as anathema. He was a heretic. They're serving God. God, this false Messiah has come, so we need to kill him. How many times have you presented a false Messiah to people. That this is what God wants. That God is against something that he's not against. You're against it. But you baptize it and now make it seem like God's against it. Persecution is a trap. For you not to believe the words of Jesus... And the attack is that, that, that not believing the words of Jesus and attacking other believers inside the church, this text calls it the world. But Jesus wants you to know that these things will happen. In verse 5 of chapter 15, that if you abide in him, you will bear fruit. In verse 8, that God is glorified when you bear much fruit. In verse 11, your joy may be full. In verse 12, that you would love one another as I have loved you. He lays all of this out to say, this is what's going to happen, but persecution is going to come. But when you look at the two, this is much better. This is what's going to keep you afloat. This is what's going to keep you from falling into the trap. You see, groups are trying to uh, separate us in so many different ways. They want to separate us because 
They don't agree with how we explain a truth. They want to separate us over politics. They want to separate us over needs not being met. They want to separate us over non-essential doctrines. To separate is a trap to keep you from abiding in the vine and thus bearing fruit. This is what's going on in the church today, family. There have been so many atrocities done throughout history in the name of Allah. There's been so many atrocities done in the name of of Buddha or any other God. There's so many atrocities that have been done throughout history in the name of Jesus. Loving God is expressed in loving Jesus and obeying him and loving his people. I remember when um, I was being discipled and um, this older gentleman, he had asked me, you know, Will, why, why do you study the word of God? And I, I don't know, I gave him some fancy schmancy answer that I thought was good. And he just looked at me and rolled his eyes. And he took me to Ezra 7.10. This is what it says. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law, the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and his ordinance to Israel. He said, Will, this is why you study. You study to learn to obey. And then you teach others how you learn to obey. He was teaching me the reason that you study, Will, is to learn how to abide in Christ deeply. And then you teach others how you learned to abide in Christ. That's discipleship. We teach others how we learn to obey. It's not just about information, filling our minds with all this doctrine. It's about obedience. Yes, doctrine is important. I love doctrine. I love studying the word of God. As long as it leads to deeper and greater obedience. Amen? John chapter 13, verse 35, it says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what he's saying. What's easier to say? Take up your mat and walk, or your sins are forgiven. How will they know that you are my disciples by some invisible affirmation? No. It says they'll know you have my, that you love one another. They'll, they'll they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And this love has a physical, clear expression. Love is important. It glorifies God and it identifies you as a disciple. And it is also our, our apologetic to the world. It is how the world sees the truth claim of Jesus being the Christ. Amen? 
Well, one of the ways that we obey Christ, two of the ways we obey Christ, um, is through the sacraments. Next week, we are doing baptisms. That is the first sign of, of obedience, is being obedient to be baptized. That is why it's such a celebration, because you have now you have these, this group of people who are now saying, I want to abide in Christ because of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that's been done in my life. I want to be an abider. Teach me. Teach me how to do it. That's our collective responsibility. It's to teach those who have made a profession of faith and are being baptized. Now let me show you how to abide in him who is everything. The other way that we're obedient is we take communion. Every week we come and, and we celebrate communion, the, the, the other sacrament of the church. Now, it's so much more than a cracker and a wafer. If that's what you're doing, that's not it. Communion is a time where in our own hearts and collectively, we affirm the person and work of Jesus Christ. That, that we come to this, this table with our sin, knowing that if it wasn't for Jesus, damnation is on the other side of life for us. But because of what he has done for us, we are going to spend an eternity with him. And we celebrate that. And we celebrate it with, that, with other people who that truth is true in their lives. This is a celebration. It's so much more than a cracker and some juice. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love. We thank him for, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to obey you. We thank you for your word, Lord, that sets our hearts aright, that, that show us and tell us what's important to you so that we don't practice a faith with just doing things that are important to us. Father God, I just pray as we come to this time at the table, that we remember Jesus and what he's done and who he is and why we love him so much. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen.